1: degrading to the president of the United States. He is entitled to the highest respect of all of our citizens. And the law enforcement agencies in this area are going to do everything within their power to ensure that no untoward accident or incident occurs. We will take immediate action if any suspicious conduct is observed. And we also urge all good citizens to be alert for such conduct. We and the 22 November Network, Network. Indianapolis, Indianapolis. Media, proudly present to you, the Lone Gunman Gunman. Podcast, with your host, Rob (laughs) Clark,
0: where research comes to shine, and myths come to die, stay tuned, be right there.
2: Hey, hey, hey! What's up, everybody? This is episode number seventy-five of the Lone Gunman podcast. Welcome, welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, first, real quick, real quick, a word from my friends at ROKC.
1: This is a very dangerous and uncertain world. No one expects uh, that uh, our life will be easy. Certainly not in this decade. And perhaps not in this
0: century.
2: The ROKC. Reopen the Kennedy Case
0: proudly presents the first ever Australian JFK conference in Melbourne, Australia this November. Join us on a quest for justice and truth with inspirational speakers and some of the world's leading authorities on the Kennedy assassination. Featured guest speakers
2: include Citizens for Truth About the Kennedy Assassination speaker and acclaimed author James De Eugenio, Gail Nix Jackson, author and granddaughter of Orville Nix, and Australia's very own Peter Morris. For more info, buy your tickets at stickytickets.com slash Conference because justice is never too late. All right, my good folks, and welcome back to the show. Once again, the show is listener-supported, so if you haven't had a chance to or you would like to, Head over to TLGpodcast.com and hit the donate button and kick your boy a couple bucks. It'd be greatly appreciated and will go directly into making this show better. I promise you that and keeping it on the air. All that out of the way, okay. I'd first like to apologize for the delay in the episode. Um I've actually recorded a couple shows with Scott Maudsley. Uh, Notorious Lone Nutter (laughs) And a buddy of mine And uh The files were too big to upload into Spreaker And to make a show out of So I'm kind of scrambling at the last minute I want to bring you fresh content I want to bring you something So today I I, got a show for you I'm going to kind of slap it together for you real quick I've been working on it for a while I'd planned on working on it for another little while Uh but, I think we can get through it today pretty pretty good. Um, and the topic today is, of course, the Dirty Dallas Cops and the Thin Blue Line. And the genesis of this episode comes from uh, an experience that I recently had in a lone nut uh, ran group. And... I had done a show a while back called Nutter Island and, and told you my experiences in, in, in this low nut group. And I was drawn back in yet again by the uh, administrator, who shall remain nameless uh, very nicely. He's a good Christian man. And stupid me thought it would be different this time. Well, it wasn't. Um, I posted the show up in there about uh, the PSE machine that I did with Francesca, you know, the assassination tapes. And I was promptly attacked from 20 different directions. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't post it up there as evidence of anything, you know, it's merely a link to my show where we talk about the book. Um, but these guys were demanding, you know, evidence and, and, you know, thought that I, you know, totally backed, you know, wholly the views of George O'Toole and his sentiments and quotes that he said, um... You know, that he believed that beyond a reasonable doubt, Oswald was innocent. And, uh, you know, I'm sure George O'Toole believed this if he believed in his machine and the results. Now, we wouldn't be talking about this all the time if there wasn't a reasonable doubt, of course. But, you know, the assassination tapes and the PSE machine is not my personal work it's a work of somebody else and that somebody else has since passed on and is not able to talk to us about it. Um, so, you know, and and it's not a, it's not an area that a lot of people specialize in anymore. I think the company went defunct like in 2002. So, you know, it's hard to find an expert, um, on all this. Now there was something called the Cuba study that was done, um, to try to debunk the demerits of the PSE machine. And, of course, this study was backed by the APA, the American Polygraph Association, whose very existence was threatened by this machine, or the existence of this machine. And uh, so, you know, they tried to point to that as, as, as somehow debunking the PSE machine, when, in fact, Dr. Cubis, A., wasn't trained on how to use the machine. Okay, it's like giving a monkey a cell phone and telling him to, uh, you know, figure out quantum physics. You can't be done unless you're properly trained to do so. And and Doctor Cubus was not. You know, in order to, back then to obtain a to obtain a PSE machine, it was mandatory. You had to take the training classes. Okay, so and there's a reason for that because. You know, without these training classes and how to interpret and how to actually use the machine, it just kicks out a bunch of squiggly lines. And you need to know how to line this up with the questions and, and, and all this and, and w- what exactly the inflections mean. Um, so that's a problem. And, he, you know, of course, the study was backed by the APA. That's another problem. And the other problem is that the audio that he was using to test was of, of a poor quality. Now, in order for the machine to be used properly, you need crisp, clear audio. You know, George O'Toole, he told us in the book that he was trying to analyze Marina's Warren Commission testimony. They had come across a plastic disc uh, of it in the archives, and it was the only one that was recorded. But the audio was of such poor quality, it could not be used to, to determine anything. Okay? So all these factors taken into consideration, the PSE machine has never been debunked, okay? Now, to get where we are now, okay, of course, that little thread, of course, evolved into my personal beliefs, this, that, and the other, and whatnot, you know? So I told him what I thought about the Tippett uh, shooting and how I believe it was Larry Crayford who had been impersonating Oswald um, who actually ended up shooting Tippett. Now, if you're new to the show and you don't know what I think about J.D. Tippett, um, go back and listen to the show called The Ballad of Larry Crayford, which you can find at tlgpodcast.com or my Spreaker archive. Um, You know, I explained this to him. And, you know, everywhere I turned with my theory, there was always one problem with it that I couldn't seem to get to get over or get past or convey properly um, how it could have been done. And that is, of course, how, if I thought Crayford was the murderer, how he supposedly got Oswald's gun to commit the murder with, and then how did it possibly get back on Oswald at the theater? Well... There is a theory for that. There's actually two possibilities. Or actually three. (laughs) Now that I think about it. Um, The first opportunity being... Okay? If you go back and look at the radio logs from that day... Gerald Hill had a suspect... Cornered in the Abundant Life Church... There at, at 10th and Crawford. And... You know he he radioed that in that he had a suspect in custody in the in the in the church, and then a couple minutes later he came back across the radio and said, "Never mind, uh, wrong suspect. It's not our guy." Okay, that's the first place that potentially the killer of Tippett, Crayford, could have handed over the murder weapon to Gerald Hill. Because Gerald Hill managed to be at all three crime scenes. He was at the School Book Depository when they found the sniper's nest. He was at the Tippett murder scene chasing down suspects. And he was at the Texas Theater when Oswald was arrested. Okay. So, a little suspect in my eyes. Um, but, you know, we, we, we can go with this. The second possibility, okay, is of course the fact that we have at the Texas Theater in a police report and also in the Tippett Homicide Report um, testimony from officers saying that a suspect was arrested in the balcony. Now, I don't care how stupid a corn-fed country boy Dallas cop could be But I would think they would have to know the difference between a balcony and the floor of the theater. Okay? And as we all know, Oswald, our Patsy, was arrested on the floor of the theater. Okay? I think that's pretty much established. Okay? But if you look at Stringfellow's report, he says the suspect was arrested in the balcony. And in in the J.D. Tippett homicide report, it also states in there, whoever wrote it, That a suspect was arrested in the balcony. Now, we have Gerald Hill, according to his own Warren Commission testimony, saying that when he arrived at the theater, he went straight to the balcony, (laughs) okay. And then, after he heard heard the commotion uh, and people saying, "Oh, we got you know, we got him down here," did he go down? That's the second place he could have gotten the murder weapon. Crawford, Crayford, or whoever was impersonating Oswald could have been up in the balcony with the murder weapon and handed it off the Hill. Now, did Oswald have a, did Oswald have a handgun? You know, I guess it doesn't really matter if he did or he didn't. Um, if he didn't, you know, people say, well, he admitted to carrying one, uh, you know, when he was in, when he was in custody under interrogation, but, Okay, sure. If that, you know, if you believe what they wrote down, you know, I mean, what kind of a weird answer is, oh uh, yeah, well, you know how boys are. Sometimes they just carry a gun. I mean, that's a really odd response, you know, for uh, for anybody. I mean, let alone Oswald. But say he did have a gun. Okay, say he had a handgun. Say he had it on him when he was arrested, okay. You know what? What else doesn't make sense is if he's killed the president, okay, and he's murdered a cop, okay. Now he's cornered, okay, like a uh, like a wild dog. He's cornered in the theater. As soon as he saw a cop come in that place, why wouldn't he have pulled his gun immediately and started shooting? Why? I mean, you've already killed the president, you've already killed a cop, why not go out in a Johnny Blaze of Glory, you know, start packing on them, grab a hostage, get the hell out of there, you know, there's a mountain of possibilities, but from all accounts, you know, they were searching the theater, and they got to him, and he stood up, and, oh, it's all over now, you know, and then they got in a scuffle, and a fight, and, uh, eventually arrested him now if you believe the uh, fairy tale of officer mcdonald you know mirac- is miraculously sticking the webbing between his thumb and forefinger in between the uh, firing pin and the uh what do you call it where you cock it i don't know the uh Shit, I don't know. I don't know what the piece of that gun is. It's, it's, it's out of my mind right now, but you know what I'm saying. When you fu- when you fire a gun, you pull the trigger, the hammer, that's it. The hammer comes back and strikes the shell, firing the gun. Well, if you believe McDonald, somehow he managed to get the webbing of his hand in between that little small, tiny area to prevent the gun from firing. I mean, that's, that's pretty damn miraculous if you ask me in the dark. Um. But that's his story, right? That's his story, and he's sticking to it. Now, you know, people... Pe- then, so, all right, let me get to the third, the third point. Um, the third place that the gun switch could have been made is on the way to the headquarters, the DPD headquarters. Um, I forget what the cop's name was that had the gun supposedly taken off Oswald, but it was given to Gerald Hill in the car on the ride to headquarters. Gerald Hill kept that revolver in his possession until approximately four or four thirty, to when it was entered into evidence at the crime lab. And we know this because of his testimony. Okay? So if he he had this gun, you know, on him for what? Two two hours? three hours two and a half hours before turning it over to the crime lad, he could he could have switched it over at any point um so there's three possible ways that the guns could have been switched um now of course the next question i get is oh so all these dallas cops are in on this right they're all all these cops are dirty they're all in on it and uh you know that doesn't need to be the case at all, actually. Um, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you where we get there. I mean, as everybody knows, you know, of course, there's there's always dirty cops. There's always been dirty cops. There's still dirty cops today. Um, cops that will do anything for extra money. Now, rewind back to early '60s, Dallas, Texas, city cops. I mean, this was a profession much like a barber, a mechanic, a preacher, a cop, a fireman. You know, these guys were not getting paid great money back then. To be cops, now of course they're you know they're they still had a dangerous job back then you know but they weren't getting paid you know as well as I mean officers still don't make enough money today for what they have to deal with and do but it was even worse back then. And a lot of these cops did side jobs for extra money. Security, bouncing, uh, you know, various, various odd jobs, you know, that, that required their expertise, um, you know, that they had. And some of these cops, you know, involved Harry Olson, J.D. Tippett, uh, and various other members of the DPD They did side jobs. Um, they did things for extra money. Okay. Now here's the connection that you've all been waiting for. Jack Ruby, Jack Ruby knew a lot of cops, a lot of cops frequented the carousel club. A lot of cops drank free. A lot of cops got girls, um, probably got money for looking the other way for certain things going on inside the club. Um and just to illustrate a point, Jack Ruby talked to Harry Olson for three hours in his car the night of the assassination. Now one of Harry Olson's or Harry Olson's girlfriend at the time, future wife, was Kathy Kay. Coleman and I believe she was in and out of the vehicle as well but mainly it was Jack talking to Harry now Harry Olson the day of the assassination was when he was out he, he had a knee problem I think he had surgery on his knee or something and he had, he was out for a while but that day he was supposedly guarding an estate uh, the actual address of which he cannot remember um, and was in the general vicinity now his girlfriend's house was actually uh, right over by the Tippett assassination um, site Kathy K. K. Coleman and you know for the life of him you know Harry Olsen couldn't remember where this place was Uh, or or exactly uh, who who referred him to do this job, uh, because apparently it was another officer's gig who gave it to him. But either way you cut it, okay? All Jack Ruby would have needed was one person on the force, and one in, okay, one cop who knew, okay, who the dirty cops were. Who would do things for extra money? Okay. Now, in my scenario I laid out in the, in the Larry Crayford episode, all Tippett had to do, okay, was wait at the Glocko Station at the end of the Houston Street Viaduct for Lee Oswald to come a-walking on by as he was going home. And he would have confronted him and shot him, and he would have been a hero. And he would have made some money. Okay? So it's a win-win-win situation for J.D. Tippett. Now, Tippett knew something was up that morning because he told his kids that he loved them. No matter what happens today, just remember I love you. And he never said anything like that. Okay? Before. But that day he did. Now, we know Tippett, from testimony, was waiting at the Glocko station in his car at the end of the Houston Street Viaduct, which, where it meets Beckley. But Oswald never came that way. Uh, maybe he was supposed to. Maybe they thought he would because it was the shortest route home. Uh, but for whatever reason, he did not. Which, I believe, sent Tippett into a panic. Okay? Now, Tippett doesn't have his guy. Now he's running in the top 10 record store, which is across the street from the Texas theater, making a phone call, not saying nothing to nobody and running out. He's pulling over cars, frantically looking inside of them. Okay. He's stopping people on the street that fit this guy's description or, or, you know, that look like this guy, Oswald. Now, Is it out of the realm of possibility to think that, you know, while it might have been a difficult decision for J.D. Tippett to actually make, that he wouldn't make it? I mean, all right, look, you get extra money, you get to be the hero, you get to be the killer of the assassin of the President of the United States. Your name will forever live in infamy. Who wouldn't do that? You know, if they if they wanted, you know, if they were a little dirty, they wanted to make a little extra money. Uh, because by all accounts, Tippett was living a little bit outside of his means. Uh, you know, as far as his house and his cars go, and then of course he had kids and a wife to, to to look after. So, you know, he would have probably taken the opportunity. And we know Tippett worked extra side jobs, uh, balancing in security. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that he would have done something like this for some extra money. Because actually, you know, when you stop and think about it, it's a win-win for him. Okay? All he has to do is kill the dude who killed the president. And he's a hero. Plus he gets paid. Okay? Not that hard. Not that hard. Now, the plan goes awry. Okay? The plan goes horribly awry. And Tippett ends up getting shot. Now they have a suspect on the loose. Now they don't, they don't exactly know where Lee Oswald is. And what's interesting to me is we have a squad car at Earlene Roberts' house. Okay, while Oswald is supposedly inside, changes his clothes, she states that the uh, she heard a little tit-tit, tit-tit on the horn, and she looks out, and she believes it to be car 207. Uh, with two uniformed officers inside, or two people inside. Now, Earlene Roberts has bad eyesight, but she can clearly make out it's a cop car, vaguely the numbers, and vaguely two people inside. So, now, obviously the car doesn't wait very long there, because it's gone by the time Oswald... uh, exits the rooming house and is seen waiting on the corner of Zhang's last seen there by Earlene Roberts now Earlene Roberts is another strange case Uh, you know she apparently uh, I I don't know if because of all this or or in spite of all this she ended up I think within a year of all this happening she just kind of dropped off the face of the earth Nobody seems to know what happened to her. Um, so, you know, we have this little conundrum, okay? That, okay, possibly, you know, if you are gonna if you are gonna have something like this happen, okay, and maybe Harry also set it up, maybe he didn't. I don't know, okay, but you know, you are gonna have. You're gonna run it up the flagpole so far to a superior, just in case something were to go awry. You know, be like, "Look, I got this thing going on. If something happens, this is what, what this is what's going on." You know, in order to cover tracks. Now, I'm not saying, because I firmly don't believe that Jesse Curry knew what the hell was going on. I don't. Now, I think it it ended it with Fritz. I think it ended at Fritz. I think Fritz had to know... Uh, exactly... what was what was happening here. You know, I think... Gerald Hill... Sergeant Hill had to know what was happening here. Captain Westbrook had to know what was happening. And then Will Fritz had to know what was happening. And I think it went up the ladder that way. Like when the shit hit the fan... when, when Tippett got killed... you know, I think they knew something was very, very wrong. And they had to correct it. Now, there's something called the Thin Blue Line out there, people. And this is basically a bond of secrecy on on the police force when it comes to anything that happens to a police officer, a fellow officer, a brother. That's what they call themselves. They're brothers. And... They will lie for each other. They will cover for each other. They will do whatever it takes, okay? When something goes wrong or something goes down, it's called the thin blue line. And they will cover for each other. They will lie for each other. And when you look at it from the big perspective, okay, you know, the eyes of the world are on Dallas, Texas, Okay, the President of the United States just died in your city. Okay? You better come up with a suspect pretty damn quick and get him in custody. All costs, no matter what, do it. Now, I think because Crafer was like, all right, man, told, he told Ruby, look, I'm out of here I'm out of town. I did what you wanted me to do. I'm gone. But Oswald was never supposed to make it to the Texas Theater. He was supposed to be killed by Tippett leaving the school book depository. All right? So Jack Ruby had to clean up this mess. Okay? You couldn't have a cop kill Oswald. I mean, that's just a little too blatant. You know? So with Crayford leaving... Ruby had Ruby was left to clean up his own mess. Now, for those of you out there who think that, you know, Ruby was just this soft-hearted sap for Jackie Kennedy, you're dead wrong. Um, you know, when it comes to Jack Ruby, he was quite possibly involved in the mafia, quite possibly controlled by extreme right-wing interests. Um... I'm trying to find this. Okay. In 1956, okay, the the Los Angeles FBI advised the Dallas FBI that Mr. and Mrs. James Breen, acting as informants for the Federal Narcotics Bureau, had become involved with a large narcotics setup operating between Mexico, Texas, and the East. In some fashion, Breen got the okay to operate through Jack Ruby of Dallas, In 1964, re-interviewed by the Chicago FBI, Mrs. Breen confirmed her 1956 story. After the assassination, a prisoner in an Alabama jail told the FBI that a previous year to the assassination, he had tried to set up a numbers game in Dallas, but he was advised that in order to operate in Dallas, it was necessary to have the clearance of Jack Ruby, who had the fix with the county authorities. And again, after the assassination, another prisoner in Los Angeles, Harry Hall, contacted the Secret Service who vouched for his reliability with the information that his days as a Dallas gambler who had turned over 40% of his profits to Ruby, who was supposed to have influence with the police. Okay. So for everybody out there who thinks that Jack Ruby is just this innocent, uh, you know, strip club owner. I mean, come on now, people. You know, his phone calls before the assassination and after the assassination uh, tied a lot of his stuff to the mafia, most definitely. Um, And then there's the interesting thing, of course, after he's he's in custody and he's talking to Earl Warren. Okay, and I'm going to read you a little bit of that testimony right now. He says, uh, Warren... Uh, or, no, Ruby asks, uh, can I make a statement? Warren says, yes. Ruby uh, says, if you request me to go back to Washington with you right now, now, that couldn't be done, could it? Warren says, no, it cannot be done. Uh, it cannot be done. There are, there are a good many things involved in that, Mr. Ruby. Ruby asks, what are they? Warren says, well, the public attention that it would attract and the people who would be around... We have no place for you to be safe when we take you out. And we are not law enforcement officers, and it is not our responsibility to go into anything of that kind. And certainly it couldn't be done on a moment's notice this way. Ruby says, Gentlemen, my life is in danger here. Not with my guilty plea of execution, i.e. not because of killing Oswald. Do I sound sober enough to you as I say this? Ruby says, Chief Warrant, <clears throat> your life, <clears throat> excuse me, your life is in danger in this city. Do you know that? Warren says, No, I, I don't know that. Uh, if that is the thing you, that you don't want to talk about, you can tell me if you wish when this is all over, just between you and me. Ruby, uh, No, I would like to talk to you in private. Warren said, You may do that when you finish your story. You may tell me that phase of it. Ruby says, I bet you haven't had a witness like me in your whole investigation. Is that correct? Warren says, there are many witnesses whose memory has not been as good as yours. I tell you that, Jack, honestly. Ruby, my reluctance to talk. You haven't had any witnesses in telling the story and finding so many problems. Warren, you have a greater problem than any witness we have had. Ruby, I have a lot of reasons for having those problems. (laughs) Okay. Um, So... You know, a lot of people on the uh, the whole uh, Johnson did it camp. Okay. They they kinda summarize and uh, you know, shorten they they, 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 they clip size what Ruby says to form to their agenda that he wants out of Texas you know because he's scared of Lyndon Johnson but he's asking to be taken back to Washington okay where Lyndon Johnson is now the president okay so why would he be doing that well if you go back to the night of the assassination or the early morning hours of the day after where he grabs George Senator and Larry Crayford and makes them go around and take pictures of these Impeach Earl Warren signs and and uh, you know this anti Earl Warren sentiment stuff that these extre- extreme right wingers, okay, have put up all over Dallas. Then it becomes quite apparent that to me, Jack Ruby is scared to stay in Dallas because of them, not because of anything else. Okay, you know he knows these John Birchers are crazy. Okay, <laughs> he knows this. They're extremely violent people. They have extremely violent friends, and they have weapons. Okay, he wanted to get the hell out of Dallas for a reason. You know, and he was trying to tell Earl Warren that his life is in danger being in Dallas, that something could possibly happen to him. Now, Gerald Hill, and I'm t- I'm taking this from from. Uh, Gokai Hassan Youssef's article about Gerald Hill part 2 about Gerald Hill that he has demonstrably lied about informing Captain Will Fritz of the location of the sniper's nest he demonstrably lied about asking Deputy Luke Mooney to guard the crime scene and calling out down to the street for the crime lad to be sent up he demonstrably lied about informing Lieutenant Carl Day of the location of the sniper's nest he demonstrably lied about how he traveled to the tippet scene. Was almost certainly lying when he claimed to commandeer Officer Poe's car and then use Poe's car to search the vacant two-story houses for the suspect. Was almost certainly lying about looking for the suspect with a witness. Was almost certainly lying about speaking to two women at the Abundant Life Temple. Was almost certainly lying about traveling to the Texas Theater with Bob Apple. Was contradicted by Sergeant Stringer as to where he was when Officer Nick McDonald shouted out words to the effect, I've got him. Was accused by Officer Hawkins of taking the revolver from Oswald as he was being uh, arrested inside the theater. Purportedly had his arm grabbed and almost handcuffed during the scuffle with Oswald inside the theater. Was contradicted by Detective Bob Carroll and himself as as to when he was allegedly handed the revolver by Carroll. Okay, now all these things... And, and uh, it's a great article by Hassan Youssef. Uh, just Google Gerald Hill, um, and you will find it from the the Lone Gum and Myth blog that he, that he does. It's a great article. Um, all that, okay, adds to the mythos of Gerald Hill and the problems that we're running into when you are in cover-your-ass mode. Okay. As soon as Tippett was dead, they knew something had gone wrong and something was wrong. Um, I think when Tippett died, you know, Harry Olson ran over to the scene as soon as he found out, um, to notify, you know, a senior officer on site, Gerald Hill, uh, you know, exactly what had happened and what was going on so that they could properly cover it up. Because when you have dirty cops, especially involved with the murder of a president, and like I said, the eyes of the world are on the Dallas Police Department. Okay, you don't want to look bad. Okay, you just, you can't look bad. You would do anything whatsoever to cover up looking bad or cover up any of your officers' being involved in this whatsoever and I think they did a pretty good job of it uh, as quickly as they did now I'm going to play you a an interview with Gerald Hill Um, and you can hear it in his own words and this interview was done on November 22nd 1963 and you're going to hear some interesting anomalies that don't match up to the official story. And I will see you on the other side.
0: Now for a report on
1: uh, one of the officers or from one of the officers who arrested the suspect who was in on the arrest of the suspect, we switch to Bob Whitten at KCRA in Sacramento, California. Well, the first call that I got was that the president had been shot, shot that had come from the Texas School Book Depository at Elm Houston Street. They sent me down there started in with a couple of deputies here, and so we were shaking the building it was, as well as a bunch of other officers, but one of these deputies and I were lucky enough to find the window where the shots were fired from, and also the three shells laying on the floor. Uh, I went back down, secured the scene, went back down to report to the inspector so he could get the time lab and everything out there, and while I was there talking to him, uh, a call came out that officer, I mean, an officer had been shot. Some citizen was using the police radio. That call came out, uh, the active Lieutenant Oak Cliff and I were together, standing there talking to the inspector, and he ordered us, being that we had all the police in town down there on Elm Street, he ordered us to the to leave this investigation of the president's shooting and go to Oak O'Cliff. Uh, we did, got out there, the officer had already been picked up, we got a description of the suspect, and started filing his path as best we could. Had information that he was in one of two houses, that were vacant over on East Jefferson. We went in over there and called for some more help to cover up the buildings and everything, shut those down, he wasn't there, and then we got a report that he was in the library at Marsella and in Jefferson. Where were these reports coming from, uh, From people who uh, had heard the description of the man. Uh, then uh, when we got to uh, the library and found out that was another false alarm, the third call came in that he had been seen entering the Texas Theater. Bob Barnett from the FBI and I went into the theater. Nobody else it off outside. Uh, we started checking out the the patrons in the theater. The movie was still going on. And uh, on the third one, that McDonald's started to approach, he was sitting in the third row from the back uh, in the center section. Just as McDonald got to him, he jumped up and yelled, "This is it!" And he struck McDonald in the face and grabbed him for a pistol which he had under his shirt. When he did that, Mike yelled and all seven of us got into a fight and finally got him subdued and handcuffed, and, or disarmed and, and then handcuffed. And uh, we were then instructed by a captain to get him out of there and get him to Central Station as fast as we could, instead of Paul Bentley was in on it with Uh right, When we got him outside, uh, I don't know whether the people uh, in the neighborhood had just heard about the policeman's death or whether they had heard about, uh, I'm sure they'd heard about the president's too. But uh, there were some six to 800 people outside yelling, kill him, and this, that, and the other, and uh, some more officers had to be pressed into service right quick that didn't actually have their hands on him to force the crowd back so we could get him in the car without anybody touching him. Uh, We brought him down and turned him and the pistol and everything over to Captain Fritz. The boy that uh, we apprehended for shooting officer J.D. Tippett is an employee of the book factory where the shots that killed the president were fired from. He was seen on the floor below, the window where the shots were fired, some 15 minutes prior to the shooting. Uh, he was a former U.S. Marine marksman who defected to Russia in 1957 and returned to the United States approximately a year ago with a Russian bribe, I understand. Uh, he did admit in the interrogation a while ago, he was an active communist. Uh, he has not admitted the shooting of the president or the governor or the, the, the police officer, but a gun was found on the sixth floor where it had been hidden. Mm-hmm. uh I have been told, and I can't verify this either way, was, an officer, was made in Argentina. Uh, the man... Uh, Understand, has resorted to violence before and, and uh, possibly shot another policeman somewhere. Uh, also, uh, he won't admit anything other than he was a communist. He started screaming brutality as soon as we got the hand cuts on him. And uh, when he got down here and was talking to then the only thing he said is, When I told you I was a communist, I admitted everything. I'm going to tell you your words to that effect. And uh, I want a lawyer. I demand my rights. Chances being as they are, with all the other situations together, uh, I firmly believe that we got the man who killed the President of the United States. Gary, did you did you talk to him any? Uh, Bob, he's very arrogant. We offered him an opportunity on the way to the station. We told him there were going to be a large number of photographers there, and uh, we quite naturally, automatically, everybody thinks brutality when when that uh, if you catch a cop killer, you know. Uh, we told him that if he that there would be photographers there and if he wanted to hide his head, we would hold him loose enough. We were gonna hold him, but he could bend over and hide his face against his chest or you know, get bend over where they couldn't get a clear view of him or anything like that. This he refused to do. He seemed he all, while he would not admit anything, he seemed very arrogant and proud of what was happening to him. So any sign of nervousness at all? So any sign of nervousness at all? Uh, Continually made threats against the officers all the way downtown. I rode in the car. Jerry Hill, Officer Jerry Hill of the Dallas Police Department who arrested Lee Oswald as a suspect in the shooting of the President of the United States. And you can read between the lines sufficiently to know it has meaning.
2: Yeah, and you can read between the lines sufficiently enough to know that a lot of what he said is complete and utter bullshit. Now, I understand that some aspects uh, you know that he could possibly get wrong like the the gun was made in Argentina you know things of this nature but he seemed pretty damn sure when he said that officer Tippett was shot twice in the forehead and that's it now we know uh, that Tippett was actually shot four times, three in the chest and once to the head. And I mean and this is coming to you directly from a cop who was at the crime scene, okay? Um obviously talked to witnesses. Um now I know Tippet's body was gone by the time supposedly by the time Hill got there, uh, so he couldn't actually see, you know, the wounds or no. Um, exactly what transpired, but he seemed pretty damn sure of himself when he said two shots, two, two to the forehead. Um, also of note, he noted that Oswald admitted to being a devout communist in custody and said that that's all he was going to tell him, and then he he didn't say anything else. That he just said that he wanted a lawyer. Now, I don't think Oswald ever admitted to being a communist. He, he was always said he was a Marxist. That's strange. Um, also, of note in that, in that interview um, is what he leaves out uh, on the sixth floor. You know, you found the sniper in this, you found the three halls. Well, what about the bag? What about the bag that was laying there? The big rifle bag. The huge, gigantic, four or five foot bag they carried out of there. That was supposedly found right beside the sniper's nest. Uh, They didn't mention that at all. And curiously, he says that they had... That Oswald was seen on the fifth floor. um, Approximately 15 minutes before the shooting. Which, if true... Okay because all right look we know Oswald told them that he was he ate his lunch in the domino room with two other black guys which would have been Norman and Jarman Now and Bonnie Ray ate his lunch on the 6th floor by himself Now we know that the three black employees ended up on the 5th floor watching the motorcade So what if okay after Oswald, Norman, and Jarman ate their lunch on the first floor, you know, in the domino room, that they went up to the fifth floor, okay? And, you know, what if, you know, about right, right before the shots or whatever, they told Oswald to go up, go up and uh, get Bonnie Ray and tell him to come down to the fifth floor, You know what if what if all four of them were on the fifth floor at the time of the shots? That's certainly something they would want to lie about. Um, Jarman and Norman, Norman admitted to eating lunch in the Domino Room. Um, Bonnie Ray admitted the lunch was his up on the sixth floor. We have pictures of of Norman and Jarman uh, on the fifth floor hanging out the window. So maybe things aren't quite what they seem here. Um, with all this now, like I said before, it doesn't need to be a huge, fantastic conspiracy, uh, of the cops. You know, it doesn't need to involve a ton of police officers. Okay. We got Hill, Gerald Hill, who, who is at all three crime scenes. He has access to the evidence on the gun, you know, the gun and on the sixth floor. And there's also a disappearing wallet at the Tippett murder scene containing Lee Oswald identification. Um, now, separate apart from those direct, directly involved in the aftermath of the assassination, but on a parallel journey, um, we have Gus Rose, who was sent to investigate uh, Irving, you know, the, the pains in Irving. And then also participated in the search for Frazier and was also present for the Frazier lie detector test Um, now there was a lot of lying going on between these cops when it comes to the lie detector test as evident in the assassination tapes where we learned that a lot of these guys are lying Gerald Hill uh, R.D. Lewis, the guy that gave Frazier the lie detector, denied doing it okay (laughs) And then, for the HSCA, he suddenly remembers doing it. Um, you know, and Gus Rose said, Oh, Frazier passed with flying colors, you know. And uh, Captain Westbrook, you know, he's, he's at all three crime scenes as well. Um, I already mentioned Harry Olson talked to Ruby three hours the night of the assassination, accounted for the day of, supposedly guarding an estate, whatever that means, near to the Tippett murder scene. Uh, and, and dating one of Ruby's dancers Kathy Kay and uh, he's let go from the Dallas Police Department in December of 1963 um, of course Tippett took on extra jobs we know he lived beyond his means uh, his actions demonstrate that he was hunting Oswald starting from the Houston Street Viaduct right after the assassination Fritz okay, had to know, question Oswald uh, Curry I think didn't know anything <laughs> I think he he was more of a figurehead of the DPD. He wasn't really involved in in the interrogation of Oswald or the, or the investigation of the murder. You know, he's more like a president of a company. You know, he he didn't do the menial stuff. Uh he would have had plausible deniability. And I mean, the, you know, the man granted uh interviews. I was listening to a half-hour uh phone interview that uh Jeff Meek, a researcher who was staying at Mary Farrell's house back in the early 70s. Uh, recorded uh, about a half an hour long, and he just cold called Jesse Curry and said he wanted to ask him some questions about the assassination. And Curry said, "Sure, I'll answer him." And he did, you know, but he didn't throw any of his any of his cops under the bus. Uh, you know, he does admit that it's he thinks that a shot might have been fired from the grassy knoll because of what the Pruter film shows, and that some of his officers were, you know, his motorcycle officers riding to the left and and right rear of the motorcade were sprayed with blood and brains, okay? That generally doesn't happen with a shot from behind. Um, you know, and, Je- and Jesse Curry also stated uh, that they really hadn't, they-, they couldn't put Lee Oswald up on the sixth floor at the time of the shooting. So, I mean, there you go. You know, if, if, if Lee Oswald had taken this gun to work, disassembled in a plastic- in a paper bag, he would have had to put it together his fingerprints would have been all over all the parts of that gun when you know from putting it together you know it just doesn't make sense and now uh, you, you got to remember originally the DPD crime lab found no fingerprints on that rifle it was only after they sent it to the eye that they found a palm print under the barrel now if that's the only thing on there the only supposed print of that Oswald left on that gun—I mean, that's a miracle. I mean, imagine all the parts of a gun you'd have to touch to assemble one. Okay, you know, in a hot, cramped space. Um, it just—it just, it just doesn't—just doesn't hold water for me. Now, we also have Roscoe White to account for, and I understand that there's a lot of, um animosity toward his story um and i can understand that with the whole ricky white and geneva white fiasco in the early 90s um you know faking the journal and 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 all that mess but you have to remember um after roscoe white was injured fatally you know he didn't die instantly okay from his wounds that he sustained in the fire at leslie welding uh, he did hang on for a couple of days, badly burned. Um, and he gave his pastor a deathbed confession that he was involved in the murder of John F. Kennedy. And, you know, there was a lot of stuff found in his little capsule, including a uh, a pose of the backyard photo that had never been seen before. Um, certain things like this you can't get around without calling this pastor a liar, which is a man of God, he has no motive to lie, okay? You know, I can't see a pastor or preacher lying for any kind of notoriety or money. You know, it just doesn't make sense. Um, now I understand all of the later stuff with Ricky and Geneva and all that maybe, you know, was, was, was a little on the, uh, uncouth side, but... You know, it, he would have come in handy. I mean, this was a guy that was in the Marine Corps at the same time Oswald was. Um, and did he know him? I don't know. He may have. You know, it's it's, it's possible. You know, they were at Itsugi at the same time. They rode over on the same boat, the USS Bexar. It's possible. You know, they're both from Texas. They, they might have known each other, ran into each other, in, into each other, became friends. Who knows? You know, but he would have been a good guy to have on the inside and the timing of his employment is suspect it's mid-october when he joins the force you know same time approximately that that frazier and oswald get get jobs at the tsbd same time larry Crayford comes to town um so you know all this like i said it wouldn't have had to been a grand conspiracy it could have been orchestrated by ruby to one of the cops that he knew very, very well that he could trust um, to recruit other cops that, that could be trusted uh, to do their job. And, uh, you know, it could have been Ruby to Olsen to Tippett, you know, and then once Tippett died, you know, Gerald Hill had to kind of step in and uh, try to keep things under control as far as the police department goes. And then Ruby had to clean up the mess because he knew if he didn't, <laughs> he would he would be killed. Uh, you know, it's not it's not hard to get there from there, you know. But anyway, that is who I think are the dirty Dallas cops walking the thin blue line. Um. So if anybody's got any ideas. You know, that I haven't quite thought of or any other players that might might have been involved in all this. You know, and and you know, I'm not just speculating out of hand, okay? There's I laid it all out in the Larry Craford, the ballad of Larry Crayford. I laid it all out for you. Why I believe what I believe. You know, because you know, there's something going on. You know, we have two witnesses to a suspect being taken out the back of the Texas Theater. Bernard Hare and Butch Burroughs. Okay, for 25 years, Bernard Hare thought that he had seen Oswald arrested out the back of that theater until he saw the picture of Oswald being taken out the front. Okay, and Butch Burroughs stated that about three or four minutes after the assassination, they hustled somebody out down out of the balcony and out the back door. So, you know, there is a reason why I'm saying this. There is a reason why I'm saying that a suspect was arrested in the balcony. There is a reason why I'm saying Gerald Hill was in the balcony. There is a reason why an opportunity for a gun handoff in three different places. um, You know, the gun is in Hills control for three hours after they get back to the headquarters. Anything is possible. Anything to save the department face, you know, and will Fritz, he never gave an interview to any researcher any reporter till his death in the early 70s he didn't speak to anyone about it no co-workers nobody he spoke to nobody about the assassination nobody about anything relating to the assassination that tells me and and curry was asked why is that and uh he said that's just the kind of man he was that was his way okay you know, this is supposedly one of the greatest interrogators in the Southwest who always got his confession. <coughs> you know, and Curry was asked about um, other suspects arrested, and he said none that he's aware of. Well, I got a couple names for you. Uh, Bill Frazier, one, and this is in connection with the assassination. Donald Wayne House was brought in. Um, John Elrod was brought in. The Tramps were brought in. Uh, you know, a lot of people were arrested in connection with this, um, and that's just the ones we know about. You know, there could possibly be more we don't even know about. But I think that's the connection between the extreme right wing, the mafia—that's your Ruby connection, okay—and then Ruby and the cops—that's your Ruby Harry Olson connection—and then the dirty cops. You got Tippett. And you know you got maybe two or three guys above them, and that's all you'd need. Okay, you know most of the cops left the theater, but when they arrested Oswald, you know not everybody would have seen this other guy taken out the back. You know people were spread out pretty thin. Most were at the uh, the book depository. The others were at Parkland. The others were at the Tippett crime scene, and the others were at the theater. You know, so not all these cops would have been in on be in on the fix, you know. And as far as Oswald goes, you know, they say all oh, how arrogant he was and you know, his actions and this and that. Well, it's also the actions of an innocent man. If you have nothing to hide, then what is there to be ashamed of? You know, or if you're confident that you didn't do anything or you're confident that somebody's going to get you out of this mess because you know you didn't do anything and you think you're protected, then sure, you're going to be a little arrogant. Sure, you're going to be sure of yourself. You know, but anyway, I just wanted to get this out there to the people. Uh, like I said, if you got any more information about any of the dirty Dallas cops and uh, anything like that, you know, and I'm looking at this from a conspiracy angle. You know, I know the Lone Nutters don't believe a word I'm saying. There's no no proof of anything it's all you know circumstantial yeah you know but you got to come up with a scenario that fits the situation okay and you have to take everything into consideration you can't just leave out the parts that don't fit okay that doesn't work either all right so my apologies go out to scott for the, the the uh the shows that we could not get on the air uh, the file size is simply too big to, to get on here. Um, in the future, hopefully we can fit, remedy that problem. Uh, the third time's the charm, buddy. We'll have to do it soon. Uh, but everybody out there, I got some great guests on the horizon coming up, some great topics coming up. So make sure you're coming back every week for, for more Lone Gumming Podcast and your boy Rob Clark. Make sure you're checking out my buddies, okay, Doug Campbell over at the Dallas Action. You can find it on Spreaker, Stitcher, Facebook. 22 November Network. Check it out, people. The Ocelli Effect over on American Freedom Radio. Uh, every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday night, 7 to 9, live. Chuck Ocelli. My buddy Carmine at Two Princes and a King. That's dot com. Book. Hopefully to be out later this year. Okay, he's got a great site, a great research site, a great resource site. Check it out. My buddy Will at JFK Primary Sources. That's primarysources.wix.com backslash home. Okay? If you want to start researching on your own, that's the site you need to go to to start. Okay? You know, you can read all the books in the world, but... Like I said before, and I've told you before, things get perverted over time. So it's always good to go back and get your own information directly from the source. Do the legwork, people. You're never going to learn anything listening to other people. Okay? You need to do the legwork for yourself. That is how research is done. And that is the only way we're ever going to get anywhere in this case. Uh, So thank you, everyone out there for listening to the show this week once again head over to tlgpodcast.com where you can find a lot of the back episodes you can find a button to the Spreaker Archive ok there's a button there for the ROKC conference to get your tickets, book now save money ok, it's that simple people That's simple alright, there's some bitches in the can beamed up to satellite down directly to your ears people this is your boy Rob Clark on the Lone Gummin Podcast. Peace.